Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. We do our Canadian Weekly Political Roundup with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University today. Ukraine has seized back all areas of Kyiv, claiming complete control of the capital region for the first time since Russia launched their invasion. We'll get the details about what they found and the implications. And U.S. President Joe Biden continues to focus his efforts on the economic recovery, but are American voters pleased with his efforts? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Time for our political wrap-up. Uh, it's a busy time in Ottawa these days with the budget coming up in just a couple of days and the conservative leadership race ongoing and uh, heating up with a little bit of rhetoric. Not unusual, of course, in politics. Uh, joining us to talk about all this is uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Laurie, always a pleasure. Hope you had a great weekend. Hey, Bill. Uh, I did. I did have a great weekend. Good. It was too short, though. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, the, the, we're, we're working on the five-day weekend and maybe two days of work, but uh, that's, I'm, it's catching. I'm waiting for one of the politicians to promise that, but uh, it's coming up, I'm sure, with municipal that's elections right. and everything else. Let's, let's first of all talk about, uh, the, I want to get into the budget. I know we're going to talk about that in greater detail, of course, later this week and, of course, after the fact when it's presented on Thursday. The concern here is, is some of the comments, of course, made by a lot of the NDP. Now, as you told us last week, not everybody's happy with the deal. And a lot of the people who are unhappy are some of the backbenchers on, in the Liberal and NDP sides here. Uh, Daniel Blakely, who is uh, the finance critic for the NDP, uh, doesn't seem to be a big fan of this, saying, you know, we're going to be watching on Thursday and see if they put any of these promises in. Uh, and, and he didn't quite say, you know, what would happen if they didn't. Uh, but you know, when it comes right down to it, Laura, they don't really have much choice here, do they? I mean, that's it, right? Like nothing about the agreement changes the fact that the NDP do not want to go to election. And so, you know, the, whatever leverage they have, it, I really don't think they're going to want to press that button no matter what. And so it seems to me, you know, if, if everybody kind of has that understanding that they're not looking to kind of press that nuclear option at all, then, you know, would it possibly have been better for the NDP to try to leverage what they could get from the Liberals outside of a, of a confidence and supply agreement, you know, like, and, and not kind of say up front, yeah, we're going to support you, like, w- you know, make them work for it a little bit. And so now I think we can see some of the NDP, you know, expressing some concern that maybe the liberals are kind of going to do what they want to do anyway. And the NDP are sort of stuck with it now. And maybe if some of the caucus members who are not totally trusting this thing, give some air to that, right? Like if, if backbenchers go, you know, go talk to the media about, not 100% being sure about this, it gives the NDP a little bit of space to, you know, possibly step out of this agreement, which doesn't mean that they would defeat the government. It just means, you know, it's it's not necessarily a done deal for three years if it doesn't work out for them. But I don't know what that looks like. That's going to be hard. Is Jagmeet Singh the most popular guy in the caucus these days? I mean, if these guys are upset at the back benches, it's his deal, not theirs. Uh, is, is that animosity going to be directed at their leader? Well, I mean, that's the thing about being a leader, right? Like, is is if there's if there's a problem, it's going to end up on your desk, you know. And they might be, you know, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall in that caucus meeting because some might feel like, okay, look, you know, this is a way for us to get what we want for the people we want it for, right? So, like, if we can go back to our supporters and say we've got we've got dental care here, and we wouldn't have have that if it weren't for the fact that we got this deal. Like, if they're able to deliver something 
with this. Some people in the caucus might be really happy about that, but other people might be saying, listen, we've basically given up our identity here and now we totally look like we're just in the backseat of the liberal government and we we don't you know, have a, as much space to differentiate ourselves. It'll be interesting to see too, and I know we talked about this before, how Jagmeet Singh plays the budget on Thursday, whether he acts like this is his budget too, or whether he takes issue with something like a raise in defense spending to be able to put some space between him and the liberals. Which I, I anticipate is going to happen because they're getting yeah. a lot of pressure, uh, including from NATO now. They, you know, we, we've essentially been told that NATO wants Canada to almost double their NATO commitment. That's a substantial amount of money uh, that mm-hmm. we're talking about here right now. Is that even feasible? I mean, it would be such a significant departure from what we have been doing and what people are used to. I mean, any theoretically, anything's possible. The, the, the finance minister might decide that it's something that she's comfortable with, but it would be such an overhaul of our approach to our defense budget and what and you know what would we spend the money on? What would that mean in terms of changing our role? It would be you know, and also at a time obviously when. We're thinking about how to manage the inflation issue. We're thinking about provinces looking for more money for health care. And, you know, the types of things that are included in the Liberal NDP deal are not exactly cheap. And so are we looking at, you know, kind of this continuation of more spending? And is there going to be at some point a, a sense that we've got to be, you know, paying more tax if we want to do that, too? And is that something that people are going to be comfortable with? I mean, it's t- I mean, the government, I think, is in a tough position because now that this there is this war in ukraine there is much more top of mind for people and it's obviously something that nato is putting a lot of pressure on canada about if you're going to be a leader then you know fill that space get your you know get your spending up closer to that two percent but at the same time you know oftentimes when people are really worried about what's happening and people are saying the cost of living is the most important thing to them these days and it's becoming harder to make things work are people going to be supportive of an increase in defense spending? That's a hard ask from people. Yves Giroux, who, of course, is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, has uh, thrown some numbers out here. Uh, he said for Canada to hit the 2% target would mean spending 54 to $56 billion a year yeah. on defense. And uh, the, the comparator I thought was interesting here, Laurie, the Canada Health Transfer, that's the money that they give to the provinces, is only $45 billion. Only $45 yeah. billion. Uh, the daycare program they're talking about right now is going to be $9 billion. Can they, def- can they actually defend, excuse the bad metaphor here, uh, <laughs> spending $54 billion when they're spending these amounts of money on other against right now that puts it right near the if near the top if not at the top of their priority list absolutely right and so it's not like all of these things exist in a vacuum if we pull defense spending up like that absolutely you're going to get premiers coming to the table you're going to get municipalities coming to the table different causes different organizations saying listen if we've got that kind of money for defense what about this what about you know what about things that we've been highlighting for a long time now what are you doing for the housing crisis and so i think it might you know have the effect of opening the government up to more expectation for spending in other areas but at the same time people are saying to the liberals like where where is your fiscal anchor right and where is the political center here right like we're still talking about more spending at a time where there's a, i think a lot of pressure too on the finance minister to reallocate things and sort of get us back to some kind of normal but i think there's a lot of uncertainty now about like where exactly our political center is i'm not sure we've like it seems to be something that's kind of open for discussion at this point because the going back to the liberal NDP deal, that's another thing too. Like, is this a sign that the liberals really are pulling to the left in a way that is much more sustained, right? Like it's not just a blip. It's not a response to COVID. It's something that they're doing in a more purposeful way. And so if that's the case, 
is there more room on the other side, you know, kind of linking to the conservative race? Is, is there something there? Is there space for the conservatives to take up around uh, more fiscal prudence that would, that would appeal to people? Or are people actually kind of comfortable with a sustained period of higher spending? And of course, people aren't going to think all the same about that. But it seems like we're at a kind of one of those crossroads moments where, you know, now that we've, we've gotten out of some of the emergency spending that was directed at COVID, are we going to continue in the high spending or are we going to kind of reorient ourselves? Well, let's talk about that race then. Uh, the uh, perceived favorite uh, so far, uh, Pierre Poilievre, uh, is uh, making a lot of waves, of course, uh, holding rallies. Uh, this interesting mm-hmm. piece in the Star last Friday, I guess it was, uh, said is uh, Pierre Poilievre's campaign attracting a different type of conservative. When you look around at some of the people that are attending these rallies, uh, a lot of uh, the folks that are covering this right now, Laurie, talk to us about uh, a number of people from... Uh, well, shall we say, the uh, the protest era, uh, the ones who occupied Ottawa for a number of days, of course. Uh, they called themselves freedom fighters, etc., different depending on who you talk to. Uh, yeah. Is that the kind of conservative that's being attracted to this? Well, I mean, Pierre Polyev was one of the conservatives who showed up, you know, at the trucker convoy and, you know, spoke to the protesters, got some pictures with the protesters. There was no secret about the fact that he was going up and showing his support. And so whether that was a sort of authentic support on his part that he really believed in the cause and in what people were doing or if that was more strategic on his part and he saw a possibility for hey look you know I'm going to be running for the leadership and I can see a whole bunch of potential supporters up here votes um, memberships money in the form of contributions because clearly we know there was quite a bit of money behind the trucker convoy and so he may have seen that as a political opportunity that he's now trying to harness you know in into the leadership race I mean It is a a different, like, we can see each of the candidates taking a different approach to growing the party in their own name, right, and trying to grow the parts of the party that are going to support them. And so, you know, some members, I think, or some candidates are doing that a bit more quietly, like someone like Patrick Brown is a guy who works the phones, works hours and hours to sign people up, and we might not see or hear him do that, but he's doing it. Somebody like Pierre Polyev is being a bit more out there with it, a bit more gregarious, louder, you know, big rallies, that kind of thing. And the messaging that he's using is definitely this sort of trying to appeal to a populist part of the population that is suspicious of government, that wants less government, that wants even, you know, reconsidering how you how you deal with money in the form of cryptocurrency as opposed to a currency that's backed by a state. Like it's these are, you know, really kind of different questions to be asking. And they they align with who he has been politically, like as as somebody who's been a, a you know, very outspoken critic of the Bank of Canada and also of the Liberal government's approach to to economic policy. And we're seeing him trans, you know, kind of translate that into a very specific kind of message. And he's trying to, again, trying to grow that populist part of this party because he, he thinks that will be good for him. The message itself, I think, is is what's troubling some people. You know, he's talking about your freedom was taken away because of the yeah. the you know the the COVID policies, and you know I I'm, I'm waiting for him to say I'm going to make Canada great again. I mean, it, it seems to be very much aligned the themes of what Donald Trump used it and and got him elected. Frankly, yeah. is Paulie have actually borrowing if a page from that playbook? If, if you know, it, it just seems he's trying to strike that same chord. Absolutely, I think he is, and we you know like we know that there's quite a bit of borrowing you know, from conservative movements in different parts of the world. Yes, I mean, Pierre Polyev can see that that sort of messaging worked for Donald Trump. And again, it's this kind of, it's a strange message, I think, for someone who wants to be prime minister 
He says he's running to be prime minister, but he's at the same time, you know, plucking the thread of this dis distrust and almost a distaste for government. And when he says, you know, he like government is, you know, you, you need to be working with higher quality cash that's not manipulated by your government, but he's running to be that government. So it's strange to me, right? Like it's a, it's, I think again, like a hard, hard message to deliver in some ways, but he's seen it work other places. And again, like, I think he knows, we can all see, you know, like the support for the trucker convoy was there. And so there's a, there's a constituency. There is a, there is a way for, for this to become a popular message that could really help him. I also think though, that the message is, is not, you know, at all convincing for everyone. This could be the type of campaign that makes him very popular with some people, but makes it hard to be people's second choice. And so if he doesn't, if this isn't a slam dunk for him on the first ballot, it's hard for me to see how this type of campaign is going to deliver a lot of down ballot support for him. And so it's a gamble, I think, on his part. Isn't that what happened with Maxime Bernier a couple of, uh, yeah. you know, leadership races ago he just didn't grow uh, a lot of people liked him he because he, he struck the same tone but he clearly was not a lot of people's second choice and it ended up costing him 100 percent. it's 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 an issue and i mean that's a, a whole other conversation really in, about the mechanisms that we use to choose leaders and whether they're you know they're meeting the goals for the party that you want because i mean a very different candidate that that suffered a similar fate was Peter McKay, who was, I don't think anybody yeah. would, would qualify as an extremist by any means, right? But he was a lot of people's first choice. And then he didn't get it done on the first ballot. And so he just sort of watched other people put other people second, and then he lost, right? And so the candidates have to work with the ballot they have. I think that's partly responsible for why there's a bit of a some kind of a partnership between Sheree and Brown. We'll understand that more in the fullness of time. But Polyev is not playing the same kind of game. He's doing something different. And so I'm not sure if he's going to end up with Bernier's fate or what. And I know he's taking great pride in the fact that he's selling a lot of memberships now, party memberships. But uh, as we know, memberships only count if you, they actually go out and vote. And we've seen that happen to, before with uh, the person that sells the most memberships if has, has still lost. And, oh, yeah. and so he's got to be wary of that, too. So as you mentioned, there's a long way to go. And they've got till June to keep signing people up. So we'll see what happens. Laurie, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. That sounds great, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Russia is facing a fresh wave of condemnation after evidence emerged of what appeared to be deliberate killings of civilians in Ukraine. British security analyst Michael Clark says there is simply no strategic explanation for the tying of hands of civilians behind their backs and shooting them. Deliberate targeting of civilians is a war crime in and of itself every day of the week. So um, unless somebody can provide a military logic why civilians are targeted, then that is a straight war crime. And civilians who appear to have had their hands tied behind their back and were shot um, is th there's no other there's no strategic rationale for that whatsoever disgusting as we've seen some of the pictures uh, on on the news of course uh, with the faces blacked out of uh, some of the the victims russia of course is denying everything so what is happening uh, strategically and and the impacts uh, of what we heard over the weekend joining us to talk about this is thomas hughes a postdoctoral fellow with the center for international and defense policy at queen's university uh, thomas always a pleasure thanks for being with us today not at all. Thank you very much for, for having me. It's good to speak to you uh, again, even if the, the subject itself is is a really, really appalling one this week. 
Well, it is because we just, you know, we're hearing varying reports, of course, about the Russians pulling back from Kiev, and well, maybe that's a good news story. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've just really what they've done is, as you've talked about last week with us, uh, they're just going someplace else in Ukraine. They're certainly not going home at this stage. But what they found in in the suburbs, the outlying areas of Kiev, uh, was beyond shocking, wasn't it? It was appalling. It was appalling, and we have heard from from some commentators that this was expected uh, or at least anticipated as being something that was uh, at least possible that said i think that there are very few people who would have been uh, prepared for the sort of images uh, and horrors that we've seen in those regions and it it's it really does make me fearful about what else we're going to find uh, when uh, hopefully a when uh, russian troops are pushed back from from other areas of occupied ukraine what does this do to the well the alleged peace talks that are going on uh, between the two sides right now? Does does it uh, stiffen the resolve of, of the Ukrainians? Does it yeah. you know do, do the Russians feel emboldened? I mean the the strategy as we've seen for years, I guess Thomas is uh, they just they do what they want to do and then they simply deny they've done it. Absolutely, and it's a, it's a great question. I, I think the first part of that question around what what does this do for the Ukrainian negotiating position, and I think we can perhaps look at this in in two ways. The first is in terms of their negotiations with Russia. I think it makes it very difficult for Ukraine to come to any sort of settlement which allows Russia to have political control over over any regions of of Ukraine. I think that that is now really if not off the table almost almost at that point uh, and that reduces removes one of those off ramps that we've we've talked about in the past uh, whether that was parts of eastern ukraine I, I think that becomes almost impossible the second part of that negotiation is the negotiations between ukraine and nato uh, and other western countries around what support they can expect to receive and i think what's interesting about this is that uh, again it, it it puts um, more pressure on those Western governments uh, to provide uh, weapon systems to Ukraine that would enable um, the the Ukrainian forces to push Russia back. I, I think it's you know, increasingly difficult, if it wasn't already, um, for for NATO to sit on the sidelines. Um, that said, of course, we know the challenges that NATO has in terms of what support it can give to Ukraine without tipping this conflict into a, a into a broader broader war, which which nobody is looking for. So there are some huge implications, I think, on, on those two sets of negotiations. And from the Russian perspective, as you said, I'm I, I'm not sure this makes a, a huge amount of difference for them. I think they've already started uh, the response um, to to these images. We've seen all of the propaganda that you would expect that this is um, crisis actors or this is um, you, it is real images, but but Ukrainians have been the ones who've who've killed their own citizens and and to any reasonable person, of course, it is utterly implausible uh, that this is the case. Um, but we've seen that that media go into overdrive already, if you like, and also really disturbingly, we've started to see. Uh, this morning as well, some some fairly high-profile media commentators are discussing the the uh, Ukrainian population as Nazi in a way that they hadn't done before. So uh, earlier on, that the conversation had really been around um, the elites in Ukraine being Nazi and uh, the population still being aligned with Russia. And of course, as we saw in the first few days of the invasion, they got a 
a sharp surprise perhaps that, that that wasn't the case. But once we start to see the population be described as Nazis and not just the elite who've led them in a bad direction, then that justifies, of course, quotes in there. I mean, it doesn't justify, of course, but in 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 the sort of um, the, the Russian terms would would justify attacks against the civilians, and and that is a an awful direction for us to take. Oh yeah, I saw the uh, the clip on the weekend there from the Hungarian president uh, making very similar comments that they were very uh, supportive of, of the Russian action there. And we've seen that, as you mentioned, from other leaders as well. Do, do you get the sense, though, notwithstanding the fact that everybody says they don't want to see this escalate, that the Russians are egging NATO on? You know, I mean, we covered the story last week when you and I were talking uh, mm. about the civilians who were refugees who were trying to leave and the Russians basically yeah. arrested them. And yeah. they, they gave them what they called safe harbor, but it's in Russia. They took their passports away and said, well, there are really yeah. Russians anyway, so we're just making them more safe. Now they're doing this. It's almost like they're saying, okay, how much more are you going to take before you cross this line? It does It does feel like that's a, a possibility. There's a part of me that doesn't want to think about that possibility, but I think it, it certainly has to be considered. I, I think the challenge that Russia really fundamentally is, is facing now, uh, as well as that is... Uh, a growing realization that they have to change their entire approach to the the war on a strategic level. And we've seen that with the removal of troops from from Kiev. And I think in in a lot of ways that surprised even the US intelligence services who were saying last week, well, the likelihood is that significant numbers of Russian troops are going to remain in the north to to pin down Ukrainians. And that hasn't really happened so much. Of course, Kiev will will still come under attack from artillery and and, uh, other missiles. But and they have taken their troops out, and it looks like they're going to be concentrating on the east. But if they are really fundamentally going to replenish the uh, sources of troops and equipment that they that they have, it feels like they're going to have to acknowledge that this is a war, and they're still calling it this special operation. And if it translates into a war, then that politically uh, facilitates different moves on the on the part of the Russian government. They can uh, activate certain different areas of, of the population and industry. And um, that perhaps also, as you suggested, um, could be further justified by, by discussing uh, NATO involvement in this conflict. So um, I think NATO is going to continue to be very careful. Uh, I think Russia would also know that if NATO is involved in Ukraine, they are not going to succeed in in, um, taking Ukraine, certainly from what we've seen of of Russian military performance so far. Um, But that... that I guess leads us to the next question, though, about exactly what the strategy is here. And then we, we've been speculating about that, really, haven't we, since the first day of the invasion. And we've seen this happen from a military standpoint. Now, certainly by no means of an expert, but God knows we've talked to it often, listened to enough uh, military experts over the last mm-hmm. month or so about this. There doesn't seem to be a strategy here. Um, you it, know, it's, it, it's, it's like a chess game. You you make this move, anticipation, okay, now we get the capital and and we saw this before, but they just, you know, now they're not even seemingly going after quote unquote military targets. They're just uh, going after civilians. Absolutely. It's, it is very, very strange. Uh, I, I think one of the, the really interesting components of this is that, that, as you may already, I'm sure you're already aware, Russia has not nominated publicly an overall military commander of this, uh, the, the, the war against Ukraine. And, and that's really quite strange. Um, you would anticipate that there is somebody um, who is generally acknowledged as the one who's um, organizing, coordinating the strategic level 
approach to the conflict and and the fact that hasn't been there is i think indicative as you suggested of of somebody playing chess and not really looking very many moves ahead um or at least they they the opening that they have learned has been utterly undermined by the response um that they hadn't anticipated so I, it, yeah it's difficult to understand where they're going from here I, I mean, I still have memories of 1968 when when they marched into Czechoslovakia. The, mm. There was a uh, well, they thought a, a President Dubček for Czechoslovakia, as, as you mm. recall, Thomas. They thought was far too Western oriented and, and you know more democratic than they wanted. They just rolled the tanks right into Prague and basically told the guy to go step aside and, and, yeah. and inserted their own leader. We saw the same thing. Not that I'm justifying what George W. Bush did, but you know when when they were going after Saddam Hussein, it was a race across the desert to get to the capital. And if somebody got in their way, well, God help them. But if they didn't, well, they just kept rolling. The Russians just, as you say, they don't seem to have a strategy here at all. No, I, and I think um, maybe maybe we're being a, a little harsh <laughs> in a sense that maybe they they did have a strategy, but the strategy was wrong, uh, or at least ineffective. So we could perhaps uh, conceptualize the, the the rush towards Kiev as very similar to that to, to, to the conflicts that you just uh, previously mentioned indeed the, the part of it which is interesting around um, Czechoslovakia and here both really commenced with a military exercise that was uh, perhaps cover for the invasion but they did mount that rapid rush towards Kiev the the difference being is first that they were, weren't able to to get there and the second being that when they weren't able to get there because of the rap the rapidity of the the advance it left them with with huge vulnerability behind that um that the the, the leading forces uh, and that really then uh, helped the strategy to unravel and i think you really um hit the nail on the head when we we start talking about well what is the strategy here because the strategy is always should be linked to an overarching political goal. And I think at the start of the conflict, that goal was very easy to see. And one of the challenges that, that I think we have now is working out, well, what is that goal going to, to look like? And um, what would Russia accept in the in the short term? I, I think in the medium to long term, we still have to see Russia as, a, as an existential threat to Ukraine. But in the short term, what is it that they're, they're actually going to be looking for? And if it does turn out, as you suggest, to be that they are going to, to sort of um, harm the Ukrainian civilian population, that is that is a devastating consequence. Well, and to what end? I mean, if it's to, to mm. just you know bring them to submission, uh, I don't see that happening. It just as we hear of these atrocities, and I know that President Zelensky actually, as you saw, I'm sure last night, made a presentation mm. even during the Grammy Awards of a videotape presentation. Mm. It just, it steals their resolve. It, it makes them you know more resistant to what's going on here. So, and again, I know we keep going back to this the idea about mm. lack of strategy in situations like this, but now it's becoming an extermination. And I know that's a word that the president that Zelensky used even yeah. at the other day and again how long is the world going to watch this before they say okay enough is enough Putin yeah and I mean those those conversations I'm, I'm sure are, are still occurring and I imagine from what we've seen in the past as well exactly as, as you suggested that we're going to see Russia just keep keep nudging and keep pushing uh, until um, they hit that point where a response um, you know potentially becomes in inevitable and 
it, it is hard to see the the consequences of, of those attacks on civilians helping Russia to achieve the political objectives. Again, as you suggested, it, we, we saw this with the Blitz in the in the Second World War and some of the strategic bombing of the Allies of, of Germany, and that there was this anticipation that um, harming a civilian population would break their resolve, and it simply didn't occur, uh, certainly not to, to any great extent. And I it feels like the same thing is occurring here. But again, we I think at this point, we have to go back to that, that understanding of, of who Russia believes that it's fighting against here. Uh, and it's plausible, or at least possible, um, that actually they, they believe that, that what they're doing is denazifying this, this area. And as everyone um, agrees, um, Nazism is not something to be accepted. But if they have that fundamental belief that the civilian population are in fact Nazis, then again, it justifies that, that killing without a political or strategic objective. Uh, yeah, and which, as, as you brought up in the past before, it begs the question, if they're all Nazis in, in this area of the world right now, in Ukraine right now, why did they elect a Jewish, well, Russian <laughs> Jew, essentially, yeah, exactly. uh, to be their president? Exactly. Uh, Exactly. who has become you know the the the, the hero of the, of, of the people here because of his stand on issues like this uh, a lot of questions not many answers and uh, we'll certainly stay in touch and see what's going on over yeah, the next little absolutely while. no i i wish i could provide more surety on this i think everyone is is now looking at how things are, are changing and hopefully we'll have a little bit more clarity uh, in the next week or so um, but it it's certainly a, a situation that that requires con continual continual attention Absolutely. Thomas, thanks as always for this. Really appreciate oh, no our conversation. Take care. Thomas Bye -bye. Hughes, uh, of course, from the uh, Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time for our weekly uh, Washington report. Uh, clearly, with what's gone on in Ukraine and the discovery of the atrocities around Kiev, I'm sure there's going to be a, a Biden administration reaction to that. Uh, a lot of grief going on, too, about the price of gasoline and uh, home heating oil in the southern states. And that, yeah, they, they still talk home heating oil. They had a blizzard up in Minnesota this past weekend. But before we get to that, first of all, I want to talk about another big story uh, that's uh, starting to happen in Washington right now that could come to some finality. And to do all of this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program. Reggie Cicchini, who is the Washington correspondent for Global News. Uh, Reggie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Let me ask you, Frank, before we get into some of the politics of this, well, I suppose this is politics in a different manner. This is a big week for uh, Supreme Court nominee uh, Katanja Brown-Jackson, uh, the president's nominee for the, the vacancy on the Supreme Court. How is this going to shake down? How do you see this happening? So, look, this is, uh, this is something that's likely going to be wrapped up by the end uh, of the morning, uh, if not a little bit sooner than that. Uh, this, is, this is going to committee right now, uh, and this is going to become a win for the Democrats. It may be a little bit stalled today. It's likely going to wind up uh, before the, the entire Senate by uh, Friday. But at the end of the day, this is going to work with a, a vote in the uh, Judiciary Committee today. It is made up of 11 Democrats, 11 Republicans. 11 Democrats are going to vote for. 11 Republicans are likely going to vote against. Worth pointing out, some of these Republicans voted last year uh, to put uh, Judge Jackson on uh, inside the judiciary uh, in the first place. But 11-11 is going to split it as a tie. It's going to go to the Senate later this week. It is going to win is it going to get bipartisan support? That is still something that we are waiting to see. We know at least one Republican is going to be on side. This will be a big win for an administration that needs a big win. 
I, I'm gl glad you brought the tie vote up, though, on the committee, Reggie, because that's a, a head-scratcher for some people. As you say, previously they had supported her. Uh, she got a pretty rough ride in the hearings, didn't she? She did. Look, Republicans were really trying to, uh, you know, dig themselves into holes here to go after her credibility uh, as a judge. And realistically, what Democrats did was turn around and say Republicans are simply playing a race-baiting game here uh, by the way that they were treating uh, Judge Jackson and the questioning uh, about her, her record. Uh, some senators, namely, uh, you know, someone like uh, uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who has obviously been kind of against the Democrats, against the Biden administration from the beginning, really tried to hone in uh, on saying that, that Judge Jackson was uh, lenient and didn't, you know, go after um, child sex offenders as hard as he would have wanted her to. But she fought back and said, look, I was within uh, the guidance. I sentenced people within the guidelines. I didn't use any of my, uh, you know, my personal beliefs to try and carry out my way as a judge. Republicans really tried to hammer her home. But ultimately, Democrats looked at her record. They looked back at the Bar Association put her uh, in good standings. Uh, and this is going to be, uh, you know, a pass through the committee likely a pass on the floor, and is going to give Democrats on what is supposed to be a nonpartisan stage another person on the Supreme Court. Just to that point, though, as I say, she got a pretty rough ride from a few people of the Republicans on that committee. But she stood her ground, and she fired back a lot of it, too. I mean, one of them, I, I, I think it was Lindsey Graham, started criticizing her for defending some of the people at Guantanamo Bay. And she said, well, that's my job. She was a public defender for a period of time. Uh, she was quick on her feet, and she, uh, she wasn't bashful, was she? No, and that's where we actually heard uh, some um, uh, some defense from Republicans. Senator uh, uh, Susan Collins had made a comment of saying, well, she didn't agree with everything that she heard uh, kind of from a background point from Judge Jackson during those hearings. Ultimately, she said that she uh, was in a position to be able to defend her record. She was in a position to be able to, uh, you know, sit on the Supreme Court and make a decision that's going to be based on the good of the country and not based on what, uh, you know, the good of one person's politics ultimately might be. So while there is a lot of Republican pushback, there are still a couple of chances here that some members of the GOP could find themselves in line with Democrats, still waiting to hear from people like Alaska's Lisa Murkowski or Utah's Mitt Romney. Neither have signaled a definite no. They just also haven't signaled a definite yes. We'll be watching that and, of course, watching for your reporting on that. As you mentioned, hopefully uh, later this week it's all going to get resolved. Uh, let's, let's talk about uh, energy and oil and, of course, what's going on in Ukraine and the sanctions that are in place. Uh, the price of gasoline is ridiculously high on both sides of the border now, Reggie. I know the president has been making overtures uh, to the oil producers in the Middle East, well, specifically the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're not returning his calls. There seems to be, it's, it's not even an antagonistic relationship. Uh, they, they seem to have a real hate on for, for the Americans right now. Well, and you have to remember, when Joe Biden first came into office, there was a kind of an immediate pushback to the Saudi government, and notably the Saudi crown prince, uh, for what the United States and its intelligence services and a report released under the Biden administration said was Saudi involvement in uh, the death of Jamal Khashoggi, and that really soured what was already a souring relationship between the two. Obviously, it was a death that gripped the world. Uh, you know, the United States wanted to, to probe and get to the bottom of this, but the United States uh, and the Saudis uh, and and other um, other Emirates throughout the Middle East realistically is in a, they're in a position right now of where they need each other. The Middle East is trying to push themselves away. The United States for the last several years has sort of been trying to push themselves away. But because of where we are right now in the grips of this war inside Ukraine and what that's done to the energy market, all of a sudden the United States is now looking back towards the Middle East saying, eh, we might need to lean on you a little bit more, and it's not going well. 
And and, and this, this is this not a new issue? I, I mean, this issue is new, but I mean the the animosity between the two of them, I guess, really goes back to the Biden or to the well, I was going to say the Obama uh, uh, administration and and some of the deals that they cut at that time. Well, and, and look, a lot of this ultimately has to do uh, with how the U.S. is in view of Iran uh, and the concessions that, that the United States might make to Iran when it comes to lifting potential sanctions here, sanctions that were originally put in place and then they were lifted uh, and then they were put back in place and now they're potentially going to be lifted again. There is a fear here that uh, that the Middle East, and especially the Saudis, are looking at the United States and looking at the administration saying, you might not be the country that was once so trustworthy uh, in this region uh, because of what you're doing doing with Tehran, because you are potentially going to unlock finances into Iran and potentially lead them down a path towards uh, a nuclear bomb. And this is of concern for the Saudis. It's the same with uh, how the United States is looking towards Israel uh, as well. These are countries that are in uh, kind of an ongoing conflict with each other, despite any progresses that might sometimes be made. Uh, and the fact that now that you have the United States looking at the Saudis saying, look, we're in an energy crisis, we need you to do more because of what Russia's done, and the Saudis saying, no, maybe we're not going to do that, we might look towards China, uh, this is another crisis that the administration is trying to deal with. And for those who may not know the, the dynamic there, and I, yeah, you're right, Reggie, it just seems to change uh, with each administration. Uh, but uh, I guess the sense is in Washington is that Biden wants that nuclear uh, deal that Obama had signed with uh, Iran uh, and is willing to give up uh, on a lot of the sanctions that are being imposed on Iran right now, which is only going to strengthen them. And that doesn't sit well with the Saudis, does it? It doesn't sit well uh, with the Saudis, and ultimately what that could do uh, is push the Saudis even further to the north and lock in what is already a uh, kind of growing and blossoming relationship with Moscow, and it could push them east and potentially find themselves cozying up with the government uh, in China as well. Obviously, those are things that the United States does not want to see happen, but the president is finding himself kind of backed into a corner here. This is Joe Biden, who, who tried to kind of not disparage the Saudis, but disparage the oil that comes from the Saudis, trying to push this green energy climate to say we need to move away from oil, we need to stop being reliant on some of these countries, and then finding himself in a position of his country is now watching uh, inflation take control of gas prices and saying, well, maybe we need the Saudi oil all of a sudden because my you know, political ambitions uh, are also on the line here. So after trying to kind of back away from the Middle East. He's trying to re-cozy himself with the Middle East. And the Middle East is saying, well, look, we could find buyers like China. We could make money from China and Russia. And this, again, problematic for the administration. Uh, it's hard to get information about where the Chinese are really thinking these days, but are they actively pursuing this? I mean, I'm sure they look at, uh, as you've just described it, uh, an ideal opportunity right now for them to really, uh, you know, improve their 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 footprint in in the Middle East right now. Are, are they having those discussions about saying, "Hey, we can be your friend. You don't need the U.S." Hard to see uh, and hard to tell. We'll, we'll find out in a couple of months. Um, China's uh, president has done no international travel, but there is uh, talk that travel into uh, into the Saudi kingdom could take place sometime within the next couple of months, which would be a kind of monumental first foreign trip for uh, President Xi. Uh, there are kind of oil watchers in the United States that say, look, just because China takes a million and a half barrels of oil from Saudi every single day um, doesn't mean that the Saudis and them are going to get closer. Uh, and that's partly due to the fact that 
oil is tied to the American dollar, so there's always going to be a tie back to America, uh, and they can't bank on on the um, on the Chinese currency uh, being something to kind of you know get locked into because it's not a reserve currency. So there's a lot of kind of economics around the do's and don'ts of who uh, the Saudis are ultimately going to side with. But the fact that you have the administration still toying with this potential trip for President Biden into Saudi later this year uh, to try and strengthen what has been a deteriorating relationship. Um, shows that there is still reliance here and there is kind of a pushback on the president's own domestic agenda of trying to get off of oil. Well, let's talk about that uh, domestic agenda because I, I'm seeing lots of uh, indications out of Washington right now uh, that they're basically losing the, the public relations war here. I mean, there are statistics, which you know, the Biden administration is, is pushing a lot now, Reggie, of course, about job growth and, and, and the state of the American economy right now. But the number of polls that, that I've seen and the, your reporting from Washington is, uh, by and large, the American people aren't buying that story. Well, and I think that this has to do with the messaging problem from the Democrats, and this is not something that is specific to um, to the Biden administration. This is most Democratic administrations uh, over the last uh, several decades, uh, is that they, they don't focus in on the actual crisis at hand. So, you know, if we want to focus this in on gas prices in the United States, which are at historic highs because of inflation, the message that they're trying to say is that we will get this under control, as opposed to the message saying Russia is the culprit for the reason that things are going up in the world, and this is why. Oftentimes it gets drowned out by Republican noise, and the Democrats have a difficult time trying to regroup their messaging to explain to the American public something that happens in another country can have a disastrous impact uh, on our bottom line and on your wallet. Uh, and so the Democrats are, are in, in a problem right now or in a crisis of trying to get their communication uh, in order. The problem is they're not doing it quick enough, and they're watching the support from the base start to erode. Uh, and and they, therein lies the problem, the disconnect that you've been talking about, is that uh, it, it, I guess when you're trying to reach the, the people, in this case the American people obviously, there's their own personal finances and then there's the country's finances. And uh, the story that the Biden administration seems to focus on here is the overall, the big picture, you know, the global economy, where the U.S. is, I'm trying to get gas places down. But I guess, you know, the people that are, are listening to that or tr they're, they're trying to reach right now are the ones that are saying, but it's it's not having any impact on my personal life. You know, I, I'm still, you know, up to my earballs and gas prices and mortgages and everything else. Uh, they, they seem to, as you say, they don't seem to be in tune with what Americans want to hear right now. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, look, the country is in uh, a good place right now. The, the unemployment rate uh, is falling. The jobs numbers are, are kind of far better than where they were. And again, it's messaging. Americans that are driving down the street are going to see high gas prices on a regular basis far more than they're going to see overall jobs numbers uh, when it comes to uh, the American economy. So those gas prices ultimately are uh, what they think of when they see the economy and, and economic numbers, uh, and it's not being focused on. Like, the deficit is potentially going to be decreased here uh, under the Biden administration over X number of years, something that's not being talked about. It will have an impact uh, on the average American, but it all comes down to uh, simple ways uh, of of communicating, uh, and that's where the Democrats really find themselves, uh, you know, up against each other, up against former Democrats. It's also why we're going to see uh, former President Obama at the White House tomorrow to tout uh, health care plans in the United States, again, to try and put a single message on, look, we are doing things for the American people. You just kind of have to search through the weeds and look for where it is. Well, exactly. But, uh, you know, as you say, it's it's 
everything is local. I guess the old uh, Tip O'Neill like, quote from a long time ago, I guess, uh, still resonates with an awful lot of these people. Uh, but with that sort of an attitude, and the, the stat I saw the other day, Reggie, seven in ten people in the U.S. Uh, describe the economy as being in poor shape, uh, which is not good news for this administration, but even worse news for Democrats that are up for re-election in November. How are they reacting to all this? Well, again, Democrats are doing what they can to focus on the wins that, that the Biden administration has had over the last year, despite many of them having been drowned out either by the war or uh, by when we were in the throes of the pandemic uh, last year. But Democrats are trying to say, look, we got infrastructure done. We're putting, uh, you know, shovels in the ground. That means that there are jobs in your community to rebuild the bridge, to rebuild the roads. Uh, that is a pickup moment for them. They're able to say, look, we were able to get through uh, this COVID crisis uh, and, and you are healthy because of that. Democrats are also going to look back and say, look at where we are right now. Look at where we were in 2020 uh, under President Trump in the throes of this pandemic. The jobs numbers are better. The health care in this country is better. You are alive, which is better. That's going to be where Democrats are going to focus. Republicans are going to hone in on the economy right now. They're going to blame inflation on the Biden administration. They're going to blame the inflation on spending in this administration. But Republicans will not blame it on external worldwide problems. People will listen to that, though. Republicans are very good at directing a message to the average voter in this country. Big week uh, for the Biden administration, and as always, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National. And uh, thank you again, Reggie, for the time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, and Bill, just very quickly off the top, you had mentioned uh, response from the administration uh, on what's yeah. going on uh, in Russia. President yeah. Biden this morning did make a point of saying that Vladimir Putin needs to be charged uh, for war crimes. So this is a new step uh, and kind of an ongoing push to hold Vladimir Putin responsible. Yeah, I know we're in overtime here, but there was some talk about further sanctions. Is that still on the table, too? That is still uh, on the table. They are going to be kind of looking at everything to ensure that, that they can help Ukraine while also holding Russia responsible. But having it called out again on a stage by the president to say that these are war crimes, this is going to resonate around the world. Sure is. Thanks again, Reggie. Take care. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, of course, a global reporter down in Washington uh, with a very active Biden administration with a lot on their plate this week. But uh, the Ukraine situation, once again, uh, taking top billing. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.